And I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault because it was my project. I'm so scared. search of the three missing Montgomery College students continues in Frederick County tonight. Ten days and thousands of man hours have been unable to produce any clues. We have a few leads, a um, few other options we want to take advantage of and just try to put together some, uh, some pieces to this puzzle. Do you believe the occult may be involved in the disappearance of your son? Okay, you're watching Movie Night Extravaganza, aka Murder Night Extravaganza right now. Um, I'm here with my co-host and good pal, Gay Andrew World, and of course, um, <laughs> Aaron and Carly from Hit Factory, um, which is a 90s film uh, podcast that talks about cultural aspects and ideology and all, all really all kinds of things that we hear at uh, Movie Night Extravaganza, and on the left in general, I think, in cultural spaces, love. How's it going? It's going so good. So good. Just that kidding. I'm so not excited to watch this again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say first. I, I, I listened to your episode on uh, Blair Witch, and you're just like, I'm good for another 20 years. You know, 20 years. Good. Yes. You know, we got you. We got you already. And that was a Twice. year ago. Twice. Right? Twice, y'all. Yeah. I watched it last night, and I'm watching it again tonight. Yes. Almost a year to the date, we watched it and uh, <laughs> then recorded an episode uh, for our show. And yeah, Carly committed to never watch or not watching this movie again for at least another 20 years. Alas, here we are, uh, and I think uh, for good reason. And, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, it's like I said, you you all make a very compelling case. So I broke my <laughs> vows for you. That's that. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into some of what you guys talked about in that episode, because um, within that last year, I mean, talking about Adam Curtis and uh, hypernormalization, which I really like the idea of um, the millennial malaise that kind of, you know, leads to Y2K that you guys bring up in that episode, um, or, you know, that it surrounds Y2K and kind of this, um, you know, uh, nationalism kind of fading out by the end of the 90s and everything falling apart and, you know, system failure, systems failure, quite literally, I think with everybody being afraid that computers are literally going to fail and like planes are going to fall yes. out of the sky. Um, and then, you know, Adam Curtis this year, which, you know, I wish he had dropped it last year when you guys were talking about this, because I think it would have been a really interesting conversation, but yeah. with uh, can't get you out of my head um, coming out and, and him making kind of a lot of the same ideas or the same points that you guys did. So I definitely want to get into that later in the episode, but um, first, first impressions of uh, Blair Witch Project or rewatching it or, you know, anything that really comes to mind. I, mean, I haven't right. watched it since I saw it in the theater, which which is a lot of um, 
Uh, I remember like back in the day thinking to myself, I need to go see it in the theater because one day I need to tell my children about this. Um, <laughs> it just, it seemed like that kind of, uh, that, that kind of experience. And then it wasn't, um, it was a good movie. I mean, I enjoyed it and it, it, it succeeded at what it was trying to do. So, you know, kudos for, for, for that. But, um, uh, which is a, which yeah. is kind of a point that we made earlier this week with um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was the episode that we did on Tuesday, doing a kind of similar, um, you know, uh, weird marketing campaign, low budget movie that kind of, I think, uh, achieved what it was trying to do, which is scare the shit out of you. And then, you know, you can ask yourself about uh, cultural implications or anything really else. But like at the base level, I think both these movies are kind of trying to do the exact same thing, which is just deliver a, a, a terrifying experience to whoever's watching it. Yeah. We were talking about this last night for us uh, when we were chatting that one of the things I think makes the Blair Witch Project so compelling to me is how much it does with so little. I mean, we're in a forest. We have three people and like some creepily arranged rocks right like they that's ostensibly the movie right? fit, yeah <laughs> it's very true and and i feel like you know i was saying to aaron the other night that so many so many movies in in the horror genre and, and the subgenres i think work really hard and kind of show you the effort that they're putting into scaring you um and and I think this movie is just so effective with how Spartan it is. Um, and I think it utilizes character traits and settings um, and, you know, a whole lot more really well. Yeah. And, and within that, um, the, one of the first clips I wanted to pull up was uh, Heather Donahue and the directors um, all talking about the casting process, which... You know, they had to find people that, number one, were 100% down to enter the woods for that amount of time, weren't, like, scared of that, were good at improv improvisation, which not all actors are. A lot of actors are just, you know, like the Robert De Niro style, where they hand somebody a script, like, you know what I mean? And they read it off, and then that's how the characterization comes out. This movie was the exact opposite of that, right? Like, there's no screenplay. There's a 35-page treatment, I think. And that's really all they, they had to go off of, and they want these key moments. It's kind of like... Weirdly enough, how Curb Your Enthusiasm gets filmed. Like they have a, a loose treatment with like a bunch of um, key moments they wanted to hit and maybe directing during those key moments, but not directing or, you know, giving them, you know, telling them what to say because you really can't, you know, it's an eight day film shoot. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of a, a for, I guess, a forerunner of like modern reality TV, which I think is kind of shot the exact same way. Like, I mean, I think when people say reality TV is scripted, like it's not that it's scripted. It's that these treatments kind of come up with, oh, well, this is what we want out of this episode. And like, we have to get there somehow. And, you know, even, even the actors get to keep their names as their characters. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of a, it's a reality TV moment, but done as a, as a, as a film. Totally. When was, when was the first season of Survivor? How many, how many years after the Blair Witch Project did, did someone say like, what if we just throw a bunch of people <laughs> uh into nature and and uh challenge them and make them find food and fight with one another because because i know a year later i was dating a girl who was obsessed with survivor and and <laughs> um we only dated in 2000 so you know it, it was definitely on the air by 2000 
I think it was concurrent. It's, I think maybe the first season was around 99 or 2000. Yeah, it's got to be pretty close. I'll, I'll yeah. have to check in with my mother, who is the only person on the planet who has never missed an episode even to this day. I think wow. everyone's moms have not missed an episode. <laughs> moms love Survivor. <laughs> moms don't love Blair Witch Project. Not as much. But, no, my mom yeah. loves, uh, the what is it, the Sarah Palin reality show that was on. What? <laughs> I didn't know that existed. There's the Sarah Palin reality show. Jay it Hutch was. says that he thinks that Richard Lewis would have been a great addition to Blair Witch Project. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. He would Just have totally have stolen the show, though. There's a lot of generosity yeah. being being tossed around between the actors, which I appreciate. I like to imagine that Richard Lewis is in the movie, and he is the figure <laughs> off screen that Heather <laughs> screams, the what the fuck is that, too, yeah. uh, when they're it's fleeing the It's just him town. wandering around like John Travolta and that, that, that meme. <laughs> Yes, like in a robe, <laughs> in a robe and slippers, open. I, I'd like to think that Richard Lewis wouldn't have gone with them into the woods. He would have kind of stayed like near enough to the car and just been like, listen, I, I'm going to stay by the car. You guys go into the woods. I'm not really yeah. a woods person. I'm, I'm <laughs> the Larry David. I, I'm not a woods person. I, I don't I don't do woods. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't talk about that on our episode, but um, Carly is extremely uh, anti-camping. It, she refers to it very frequently as um, white nonsense. And it is. So, you know, there's there's that element of it, too, I, I think, which is. Uh, yeah, it's just like. What, what did you say? It's like it's like performative poverty or something like that. Yeah, or... like I don't want to. I'm gonna make a lot of people mad. I think with this take, but I I just um like the whole market around like gear for camping, where you're spending like hundreds of dollars at REI, if not more than that, to go like sleep in the dirt. I just I just don't get it. Um, and also I think like I love nature and I love being out in it. I don't know that I would want to be deep in the woods like by myself or with a couple of other people um that's just like not that's not my bag yeah i i liked nature until the last couple of days when i, when I of course, this is what I'm saying. camping sounds dope until until now you know? he like posted a picture of a sunset and he was like no every single thing i see is creepy <laughs> well so i go on this i go on this bike ride and the loop takes me past a cornfield um like if I'm doing like oh, the short sucks. version of this bike ride, so like past the cornfield, which like you know, how many horror Children movies are set in cornfields? Like um, so past many. like this this low like point where you see the sunset, which is really nice, but not if you're thinking about the Blair Witch Project and like through the woods. And so this loop like kind of takes me through all the places that I'm like, well, fuck this. If if I just watch the Blair Witch Project, I don't want to see any of this stuff. No, <laughs> I could not even. We watched it at my older sister's house last year. We were house sitting and such a bad idea they, they have this big beautiful house it's super it's like one of those noisy houses where it's like always talking to you about something yeah, and you're like, like creaking and yeah yeah, yeah. and it's like yeah, near like, the coast too it's near like, the coast it's, it's near the ocean so you it's get like a lot of wind there. on it yeah. like it's just like constantly creaking and cracking and not not good sleep that night that's when i was this. like fuck corners and fuck stairs like i stayed upstairs <laughs> i could not the other thing that this movie makes really creepy is um like kids playing like the sound of kids laughing and, and running around because when they're in the tent and this is like a real thing that happened during the filming of the movie they were playing these sounds of kids laughing and playing around like outside of the tent to scare the shit out of them at night um <laughs> and it makes yeah, it they, extreme, they didn't tell like, them anything either like, like um yeah. my understanding no. is that they got like like, like they got notes dropped to them before they started filming for the day. Mm -hmm. And then they had to like, and, and they couldn't see each other's notes. 
and they got right. characterizations. They got like, this yeah. is what your character wants today. Yes. You know, your character wants to not be in the woods and to right. get <laughs> back to the car. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is this is this is the casting uh clip. It's a it's a few minutes. So um I, I don't know. These I, I looked at two different like documentaries on the making of it and kind of cut stuff from it. So Oh, I'm excited. The casting process uh, was really important in this film because, you know, Ed and I came up with these character profiles that we felt fit the story and the backstory. And um, so what really what we were trying to do is cast personalities rather than actors to portray a particular role because we knew there was so much improvisation throughout the film. We were given a great deal of freedom, especially as my character was sort of making the documentary initially. And I had tons of freedom as far as writing the documentary that I wanted to make as my character. So I got the CP up. Good. That's important, because that's what we're shooting on. No one knows I took it, but I got it. All right, come on, into the house. Come on, come on. <laughs> I can see you. We're not going to bump into shit on my back right now. Okay, we don't want to fuck up the cameras before we leave. We trained them before the, the shooting began, a couple of days on, uh, you know, loading the camera and uh, the sound guy. Um, was uh, trained on the DAT recorder. So, you know, we just trained, kind of gave him a, like a three-day film school. Okay, we're going to do um, an equipment check, but I'm going to call my mom. Okay, I've got a bag of odds in the And we don't really need to get that. <laughs> so I, I guess you're covered then. Could you just run it for a couple of feet for me so we can check that it's okay? We definitely warned them that they were going to be uh, pretty much not really treated very well. We weren't told much as far as specifics of what we would be doing. More... It was more just the nature of the filmmaking. We made it clear to them, you know, this, I mean, even in the audition process, we put a, a sheet out there that said, if you don't like camping, if you don't like being out in the woods, if you don't like being scared, don't even try out for this part. So it was very important from the very start that we make it clear to people that this wasn't a conventional, you know, film. What? We came up with this, uh, you know, real time format to shoot, you know, the solid eight days out in the woods and, and keep the actors immersed in their characters as much as possible. A lot of it was, I think, just acclimating to, you know, being in character and staying in character. I mean, not many situations in the film that you get on do you have the camera rolling all the time. How did you get involved in the project in the first place? Um, like I said, there was an ad in Backstage, which is basically this paper that comes out every Thursday. Okay which for the unrepresented actor is a big day, you know, because then you take that home, you read through all the ads, you sort through the things that say uh, nudity required, meals and copy provided only, no pay. You know, you take those things out. Those myself, you right? highlight the things that actually sound potentially interesting. And you send off those headshots every Thursday night, Friday morning. And one day, Long, long ago, an ad <laughs> caught my eye that said improvised feature film. At that point, it was called the Black Hills Project. Okay. Um, but the, the main thing was that it was an improvised feature film. That, to me, that stopped me dead in my tracks. You because that is... Doing improv. Wow, that's a dream. That's okay. creative freedom that you can only think about in your imagination that never actually happens. Um, and then there was that whole part about wooded location and all that. But, you know, right. I kind of put that, that out of my mind for the moment <laughs> and concentrated on the improvised feature part and went in with hundreds of other people, because obviously a lot of people thought this was a good idea and went back time and time again. Um, the first one, though, I went in and I sat down and it was Dan Myrick, who's one of the directors on the project. And he said, no introduction, mind you. You walk in, you sit down. He says, well, 
You've served seven years of a nine-year sentence. Why should we let you out on parole? And you uh, had to take off with right. that. So then I had to. I made up this whole baby ah. killer character, and I said, "You shouldn't let me out." People throw pacifiers on my lunch tray. I'm angry, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then he's like, "Come back tomorrow," and I was like, "Yay!" Together, <laughs> you know. Well, I read an ad, or uh, actually, this is the ad that was on the wall. Oh, the, the scare note when you to went try to, to get the people audition. to leave it. Yeah. Now I would run as fast as I could if I said, "You are about to read for the most demanding and unpleasant project of your career." If you are cast, we're going to drag you into the woods for seven days of hell. 168 hours of real-time improvisational torment. We're not kidding. So if you're not serious about your craft, then you're wasting your time in ours. You read this and said, and I said this, going for it. These are people I want to work with. Oh, my gosh. Well, good for you. I mean, you are a brave girl. It's, I know a lot of other people who obviously read that ad and noticed it as well. Like, a really good friend of mine, Jamie, she's like, I looked at that and I said, absolutely not in a million years. Are they kidding? Right. You know, so it's it take, it's a certain type of person, I guess, who finds that interesting. Very brave. <laughs> now I commend you. I love that. <laughs> it's, I mean, that. It, it's, it's like pretty insane when you think like the way that the interviewer is kind of interviewing her is a little bit like almost condescending because she's like, yeah, that's like insane that you took that role. <laughs> I also think like, you know, one thing, and we mentioned this in, in our episode that we did last year, one thing that was effective on me as a child when I watched, when I first watched this film, but that I really got to appreciate watching it 20 years later is just how much talent is required to do what they're doing and have it and have it land the way that it does it's not just the improv right it's also as josh said in that interview staying in character and staying with the things that the character wants even you know when you're sleeping or or you know you're not actually doing a scene together and I think that's one of the things that makes the escalation of the tension between the three of them feel so organic and so earned. And it's what what I find myself sort of like just uh, as things get more intense because it does like I've been in, you know, challenging. I hate camping, but I have camped. Um, and, and I've been in challenging situations where like, we're on a, you know, 12 hour hike and we're, and, and you do have those conversations where you start to rationalize something or ask, ask leading questions. And I just felt like the dynamic between the three of those, those characters felt so real and the way that they all shift their perspectives at one point or another, just, yeah. And, and I mean, presumably, presumably I would say that, um, you know, as someone that kind of went to film school, not, I mean, you know, at least in the sense of like, you know, went to a, a media program at my local state school, but still like you get these group <laughs> projects where, you know, you and a couple other people might be inc incredibly um, passionate about it. And then other people in the group kind of just want to show up and be told like, Hey, like this is what you're doing today, like, and, and get it done. And they just, you know, so they kind of let someone else lead. This is kind of a, I mean, watching that, um, the sci-fi documentary, which we'll definitely talk about. Like this is supposed to be a, a version of one of those group projects where instead of just being like, hey, let's go to this place and, and shoot, they're like going into the woods to do it. So the the dynamics between them are especially funny um, in that context, I think, because, you know, Heather is clearly the one that's like 
really gung ho about this this project she's putting together. You know, and you would think that maybe her friend, I think uh, Josh is the one that she actually knows that she's close to. Mm -hmm. And you would think, oh, they've been friends for a while. But then, you know, that other documentary kind of shows that they haven't or mockumentary, I guess. Like, right. So it's just like they're they're doing this for a project. And she's like, all right, let's go to the woods and, and be there for the weekend and like shoot. The, like and see if we can find the Blair Witch so like in that context I think it makes it really funny that I mean of course things are going to go south as fast as they do because it's like three people that really barely know each other doing a school project and you know Mike isn't even supposed to like you know Mike is just asked to be there as an audio guy like he's not even <laughs> part of the class yeah, yeah I mean, so one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Alien Ridley Scott's Alien and the thing that I love about it, you know, that people talk about and remark upon, like this is not particularly novel, but you know, the, the dynamic between the characters is that they're all coworkers at the end of the day, right? Like it is like, you know, it, it definitely has some sort of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, labor and and like capitalist critiques in there. But I, I like the dynamic in this as well because it's so similar to that, right? Like these guys aren't aligned as like you know ch lifelong childhood friends. They're not couples. You know, like none of these people are are like romantically involved. And and so, uh, yeah, I mean, you you get it and, and it makes more sense and it just makes for like a better sort of like foundation for all of those different connections to start. I don't say foundation. Now, now I'm thinking about the, the end of the Blair Witch Project. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Um, I, yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I really like what you guys said in, in that episode, too, where you're talking about how um at one point, you know, like two people will be mad at another person, that dynamic. And then all of a sudden that person will get really upset. And then those two people, those same people, like five seconds later are comforting the other person rather than kind of creating a, a fully antagonistic situation between them all the time. Like these dynamics are always shifting and that's like incredibly realistic in that sense. Yeah. Also like nobody is like a, a, a trope, you know, like, like, you know, right. uh, they could have easily made Heather into like a bitch and, and she'd just been like a bitch the entire time. And like, you know, she's just uh, someone that really wants to, you know, get their group you know. project going. Yeah, no. And she, she had like she, yeah. she had depth and agency. And, and at times, was she a bitch? Yeah. But so was everybody else, uh, especially, yeah. you know, totally. Mike kicking the, the map in the river, you know, dub Mike. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> like that they start out where we, you know, we're sort of expected that Mike is kind of going to be the odd man out because he's the one that knows each of them the least but pretty early on they establish a little bit of tension between the two men and Heather and and then you sort of think and this is to your point for us then you sort of think that that's where it's going to stay but really then what ends up taking us through the last third of the film is the relationship between Heather and Mike, who know each other the least out of the three of them. And um, and and I think that that goes to the point that, you know, Josh seems to be the one that breaks first. And then, yes. what, you know, what, whatever happens to him, you know, whether he gets dragged out by laughing children that, <laughs> and then his teeth get ripped <laughs> out or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever he gets put through some kind of like, it's almost like he gets put through some kind of portal, like, you know, what I mean, because they can hear him but they can never actually like see him. There's like, so what, whatever, you know, whatever ends up happening to him, whatever ends up with him getting either grabbed or led out of the tent. Um, like it, then all of a sudden, you know, they have to kind of rely on each other. And that dynamic closes up, I think really fast, like the tension that's been there the entire time. And also I think Josh exists in a kind of um, like, like almost um, I guess pacifying role for the other two who I think mm. are, are kind of the strongest um, personalities because obviously Heather's, 
constantly trying to finish her um, project, whether or not, you know, it leads to them all dying in the woods or not. But then also, you know, I mean, Mike keeps getting upset with her and doesn't really know her. And so it seems like Josh kind of takes on that kind of hovering pacifying role. But then at the end, they get closer than they did at any time with him as the, right. you know, the third person. Right. He's the anchor, though. He's the mediator. When yeah. whenever Josh isn't on screen, all the other characters should be saying, where's Josh? And they do. You yeah. Know? At the end of this. Josh! So. <laughs> okay, we can come back to this question, but I just want to put it out into the ether for consideration. Do you all think that the forest is like somehow corrupting them? Do you think that there is um, like an actual occult spirit of some sort that is acting? Are there like... and? we don't even necessarily have to answer this, but one thing that I think was interesting for us to consider when we were watching it this last time is the way that that movie kind of allows space for you to ponder a bunch of different possibilities where you're like, is the forest fucked up? Like, is there a witch? Are there like deliverance people fucking with them? Like it, it leaves, it leaves it all open. And I think that actually feels scarier to me. Um, yeah, well, then even my that, imagination just goes. Yeah, well, well, even that last that last shot, um, you know, because the last shot, like, it would be one thing if they had Mike, um, like sprawled out dead, and then the camera flips over and you see him dead, and then you're like, all right, well, that's at least closure that something's happened. But the fact that he's just facing the wall like the kid did, um, mm -hmm. you know, the kids that were getting you know murdered by the witch, presumably, or the, but then there's also like, you know, they they talk about it in the beginning, and then that that sci-fi documentary talks about it, um. The fact that there was like a serial killer type dude that had yes. just led, like led these kids to a house and then claimed that the witch had um like uh, you know hypnotized him and then he had to kill the kids and then so he was facing the kids to the wall so you see all like so the fact that they leave mike facing the wall as if he's one of those kids that has gotten hypnotized by the serial killer working with the witch kind of makes it far more terrifying than if they had given you at least closure on one character and be like that character's dead like something you know like when when she falls like you know is she falling at first in shock did something tackle her um you know did something wrestle her to the ground is she instantly killed by something is it that he's facing the wall and then you know let's say like josh's face this is in the other place and then all of a sudden he tackles her and and you know what i mean so you're like you're left with all of those questions all at once and the other thing that i think um when they're running through the woods after the kids are laughing and you know which is i think it's about to be uh mentioned in, in the next clip that i had queued up but um they had an actual guy in the in the woods wearing all white that was yeah. supposed to be scaring the shit out of them um that one day and that's when she screams what the fuck is that but because um accidentally they never they never capture her seeing the guy you don't know what the what she's screaming on where she's like what the fuck is that you don't know what she's seen is it an animal is it like so that also leaves you with a million of the same questions and i do want to say yes. forest absolutely is a corrupting influence on me um i mean i've done <laughs> what 29 episodes of this show no. yeah holy shit this is episode 29 <laughs> and we only started the show in july yeah. congratulations, congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What's weird is like, like I start. We started like uh, I started two movie podcasts at the same time. <laughs> As I said, I've been telling Forrest. I was like, y'all have a much uh, a much stronger constitution for this than I do. That's all I can say. <laughs> 
I mean, I didn't, I didn't start out with one, but we've only been doing these movies, um, you know, throughout, throughout October, like we've yeah. kind of solely done slasher movies. Um, <laughs> and also I have an Adderall, I have, I have an Adderall script. So, you know, I, I, I sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you, you know, you, you take Keep your going. meds and you just, you just can't look away. <laughs> I know you were, you were on one last night at, it was like 1230 our time. And I was like, he is espousing like some pretty intense um ideology right now and i was like half asleep and i was like totally yeah we'll talk about that you nailed it forrest (laughs) (laughs) espousing intense ideology was the original working title for this podcast there you go there you go all right so this is this is on the shooting process um i i think this is interesting and this is what touches on that uh the the guy wearing all white i guess what we came up with this, uh, you know, real-time format to shoot, you know, the solid eight days out in the woods and, and keep the actors immersed in their characters as much as possible. A lot of it was, I think, just acclimating to, you know, being in character and staying in character. I mean, not many situations in the film that you get on do you have the camera rolling all the time. What did you think that was last night? Personally? Yeah. I think it was someone fucking with your head. And nobody knows we're out here. Yeah, but you ever see Deliverance? They would watch the dailies at night and uh, give us instructions, character motivations on, on what they saw and where they wanted to take it for the next day. And we wouldn't know what each other's character motivation was. So a lot of the time, you know, we, we would be conflicting in, in what, our, you know, what our goal for the scene would be. That's good. Thank you. You know, that in itself created a lot of tension. No, I'm not fucking scared. I'm just tired. I'm hungry. I'm fucking like, I'm just fucking done, man. All right. We guided them through the woods with this GPS system, this global positioning system that allowed the actors to um, remain isolated, but yet still in contact with us. We had little instructions put in milk crates with big bicycle flags, and we could spot them using the GPS. And, and then every once in a while, around the milk crate, you'd hear this little skulking in the woods. And every once in a while, if it was dark, you'd see this red beam, and you knew it was, <laughs> it was the Haxon band of goons running around again. Hello? They let us sleep the first night. Yeah. And then, you know, starting on the second night, there was you know, there was certainly a building of of how much they were gonna torture us and right. you know, how much was gonna go down and what that was. We'd wake up like at two in the morning and we'd walk out there, you know, a mile to the location and we'd sneak up on them and we'd make sure they're asleep, you know, make sure nobody's talking. And they were setting up, you know, sound loops of babies crying and kids laughing outside at ten and four in the morning. Basically it was just us running through trees and going nuts out there in the complete darkness. I think it was by about the fourth day that, that you know, the insanity really came into play. I just want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry to my mom. <laughs> Andy, that was good. Yeah, nice yeah, job. You got me with that one. Yes. <laughs> so that, yeah, but that like, clip. It... No, no, go ahead. Okay, that clip uh, just reminds me of, of a point that, you know, we've talked about before um, and that I think we were mentioning as well, which is like, obviously, like this jettisoned like a ton of found footage horror films, right? And, and made it like a pretty en vogue thing after, I mean, you know, it's not the first by, by, by far, but, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly one of like the sterling examples. And then you get, you know, VHS. Well, interestingly, you mentioned the one in, in 1998 
but I mean, presumably this would have been shot in 97. You know what I mean? Like right. it's, it, it has to like, you know, you have to end up asking the question, like, are they just two, like, did, was the same concept used twice in two different movies by accident or yeah. did they hear about this from a, a studio or something? And all of a sudden, like, you know, cause they were, I mean, obviously they were workshopping around trying to get at different studios, like trying to get, you know, somebody to buy it. Did they hear about it and then try to rush to make one? using some of the same concepts or like, did they have the, the idea to do a similar, like, you know, Oh, we found this, this uh, lost, you know, documentary and we're going to show it to you concepts. Like, did they just both think about that at the same time? Like, I don't know. I, I started asking those questions. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's always, you know, a curiosity, like obviously with studio systems, it makes more sense, you know, like why we get like volcano and Dante's peak at the same time or, you know, deep impact and Armageddon and stuff like that. But with this, yeah, you do kind of have to wonder, like, who was who was in the room where and, like, who saw what to, you know, kind of influence and inspire that? Um, was there espionage involved, you know? <laughs> and sometimes it's just the zeitgeist, too. Like, like um, uh, right around the Sixth Sense was coming along. I was actually working on developing a, a comic about a guy who could see demons, um, mm -hmm. which isn't that dissimilar from a kid who can see ghosts. Um, yeah. You know, which which I kind of, like, then threw that aside and started working on something else. Um, totally. Just, yeah. I was I was in uh, a film program, a media program like you, Forrest. Um, a media program? Yeah, a program. Yes. Um, and, and a friend and I were like uh, doing a, a kind of a treatment and creating this sort of like Bible for like a, a series, or like a web series or, you know, however we wanted to make it. But uh, we, we wrote this like treatment for like a, a one or two like uh, season arc. Um, and it, it's curiously similar to stranger things <laughs> um a couple of years before that came out and i was like okay so you're right like it's probably like there's something that's just like influencing this particular trend ours wasn't set like you know in the 80s or anything like that but well i want to pause here for a second because i agree with you andy i think and we talk about this on our episode a little bit i think in the 90s particularly in the late 90s particularly in 1999 and you know the the years leading up to the millennium there is um a heightening of a sort of ambient paranoia right like the the thing that we talk about on our episode is um that a lot of the the sort of promises of neoliberalism um had started to show themselves as falsehoods and even though people couldn't quite name what was happening um, or the ways in which they were being betrayed, they did know that something was wrong. And there was a sort of, you know, generalized mistrust. And so I think like the fact that we tend, we in 1999 in particular, see a whole slew of movies like The Sixth Sense being John Malkovich, The Matrix, American Beauty. I mean, we talked about a bunch of them. Dark City. Dark City. This movie where they're all, you know, sort of playing with the, this idea of what is real and what isn't and who's really in control. That was absolutely in the zeitgeist, as you say. Yeah. And, so, and you, can, you can also, you know, point it back to the X-Files, um, mm -hmm. right. which yep. was, you know, uh, very much was born out of Nixonian paranoia of, of the uh, the 70s. But but, you know. Uh, it continue, you know, that that, that kind of continued on through the uh, through the eighties, and, and um, uh, well, great... I mean, Nixonian par paranoia is is something that kind of doesn't go away. Like whenever things start to get no. bad, 
like it kind yeah. of hits that point again because you know for the first time these intelligence services and you know the government itself and all of these like you know like spotlighting a president as a you know as a criminal like literally a criminal and the intelligence services as somebody working for them and you know everybody like asking the question like who was really involved in this is the cia involved with this is the fbi involved with this like all of those different questions when everything recordings of the conversations uh came out right right around the same time the movie the conversation uh which um oh shoot uh de palma i think no coppola 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 that was it um so so uh, so like like one had nothing to do with the other just again the zeitgeist and and yes uh coincidence uh and like you know a lot can be said about coincidence yeah i mean it's it's ultimately just like it's it's a, a a terror at the collapse of our institutions right and like the the revelation of that, whether it's you know the presidency and like our you know the, the state itself, um, and then further on into like the '90s, you know, here at the end of it, it is actually uh, even more than just like our leaders. It's like the the promise of the American dream. Like that is the thing that is actually like corrosive uh, and like a falsehood. And and that's where we start seeing things kind of come untethered and start breaking down here. And, and in, in, in a very similar way, I think, you know, with globalization and with computers kind of taking over um, as, you know, doing more and more things for our, like for systemically in our, in our society, I guess, like, I mean, the perfect example is Y2K and the planes falling out of the sky, like, you yeah. know, like, oh, well, we're trusting computers to literally have our planes fly and navigate them. We're trusting computers with all of these different things. The question of who's really in control all of a sudden is taken out of the realm of just like, you know, are human beings in control of this and, and take it to like have, have scientists and engineers and everything fail to even be like create computers that are able to, which is a ridiculous thing to think about now, like on the other side of it, like what, like all of a sudden it would say 2000 and then the planes start falling out of the sky. But like at the time I, I remember it being a really real thing. I mean, I was, I wasn't oh, yeah. very, yeah. I was, I wasn't very old at the time. Like I think I was like six years old or something in 2000, but I remember oh. my mom, was stockpiling cans. She went to all the grocery stores and was stockpiling food just in case the electric grid went out. And um, like, so we had our, our entire downstairs was full of soup cans just in case the electric grid and we needed to cook food and you couldn't get to supermarkets anymore. And like, but I'm not saying that to say like, you know, that she was specifically paranoid. I don't think she was based on like, you know, everybody else that was kind of saying similar things that like, you know, if everything fails and there's a stampede and then you can't get food and like, it makes sense logically if you put yourself into the, into that systems failure mentality. Yes. I was just going to say that the, the, the panic is coming from a fundamental understanding that at some level, all of us know that these institutions are going to fail us, or at least that that is a possibility. And you can't, you can't change the institutions on like an individual level. So that panic kind of comes into like, you know, technology as like, you know, as it did in a lot of cases, I think like with the Luddites and, and, and other like, you know, throughout history, like as people lost control of their own situations, what they started blaming is not the institutions themselves, because those are the hardest things to change or the system itself, because that's the hardest thing to change. It's technology that very legitimately was putting lots of people out of work, both in the 70s, which we were talking about deindustrialization and uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like the idea that, you know, mm-hmm. the slaughterhouse has suddenly gotten an air gun and it puts this family out of work. And like you and you never really know within that movie, is it like were they always cannibals Were they always like satanic cannibals? And are mm, they just capitalizing right. on that or are they suddenly out of work? And it's like, well, we could slaughter humans and there isn't really that much of a line between 
you know, killing cat like cow after cow after cow after cow and killing a, a human being, like, is there all like is there um is it deindustrialization that's kind of caused these this family that's already inbred and already rural and whatever like you know what whatever you want to use to describe them the line you know between eating people and eating uh cattle for them because they're around death so much like is it deindustrialization that pushes them over that line so in a similar way i think in the 90s um globalization it starts like we start to realize the full impact of that yeah, I think uh, Jim Hightower kind of captured it really well in his book. Um, if the gods wanted us to vote, he would have given us candidates. Uh, kind of like talking about uh, the politics. By the way, of- wait, Jay Hutch. No, that's because Antifa was, you know, they, they were throwing the soup at the cops. <laughs> that's right. And, All right. Uh, so, <laughs> that's why you couldn't find any soup when COVID hit. All yeah. the soup was being used as, as uh, projectiles. As, yes, as projectiles. <laughs> I, I still I still love that Trump clip where he's saying uh they say it's soup for my family. <laughs> that they was a great Trump impression, by the, the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you're talking about uh you know, like the, the deindustrialization stuff with, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you know, this is like certainly, you know, has some sort of like uh latent anxieties about like globalism and here and globalization uh but one of the other things too that you know we've touched on in conversations about this movie is sort of like this to me and this might be a stretch but is like one of the earliest examples that i can think of of a film at least in the horror genre tackling sort of uh the anxiety about the coming sort of like rural white resentment and specifically about like uh yeah, I mean, it, just, just that, you know, like like coming out of the 90s, there's there's that sort of tied to uh, also, I, I think, you know, like the, the sins of like colonialism and imperialism as well. You know, like we, we have these things kind of like fusing into one entity or, or uh, you know, something that's being controlled by this sort of like specter of a witch that comes from, you know, back in like the 1700s, but also, you know, like there's the talk of like deliverance folks and, you know, just like they, they make kind of like a joking comment in the movie about Mary Brown, I think is her name who has like the American flag, like in her window as Which, well. Uh, I think she died like a few days ago or something. You're like, kidding. It, on a weird, on a weird timeline. Yeah. The, no. I think it was, I think it was pretty recently that I saw something about how she passed away and, they're like most known for Blair. Cause I, I looked up Blair Witch Project to stream it and then it was like news headlines with the Blair Witch Project in it. But oh, um that's sad. Wow. Okay. She's, um she's like one of one of the great sort of like tertiary performances in that yeah. in that movie. And, and there's a bunch of them kind of I mean, I don't know. They, some of them are hard to hard to believe, I think. <laughs> oh yeah. The, being a total the, jackass. the baby who's covering his mom's <laughs> mouth as she's talking about uh children being slaughtered. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe I might I might have looked at an old article, but I thought that, that was one of the um yeah. I don't Fake know. news, Forrest. <laughs> um no, but I think on on a similar level, um in that episode you guys talk about how um you know nationalism had kind of failed. And that's a and that's a similar point to you know the, this um Clint like this Clintonite nationalism and this belief in like you know mm-hmm. um you know the 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 um like you know the end of the end of history kind of moment where it's like things aren't going to get any different than they are now like we've kind of reached the peak things like the only thing that can really happen are like 
small skirmishes, but like we've kind of come to the point where, um, yeah, like we, we've come to the point where this is all, you know, we, we've reached, I guess, the peak of, of, of society and it can't <laughs> fake news. He's but putting you on forest. blast. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it hits on a similar thing with the Adam Curtis stuff that we were talking about, which is, um, you know, watching, um, can't get you out of my head. I, I remember that there was the point that he made that, um, I guess the quote is both Britain and America were societies that had been built on empire and conquest through violence and the exercise of power. But neither of them had ever, I wish I had his accent, but, but neither of them had ever <laughs> faced up to this. And instead they both had built uh, dreamlike myths about their exceptionalism to shield and protect themselves. But in both cases, those myths were rooted in fear. And mm -hmm. in, in, in Blair Witch Project, that fear is literally heightened, right? By the fact that this, this witch is um, coming to them from the 1700s and, and the witch trials and they go into the woods and they've, you know, Adam Curtis starts talking about how, um, at least in England, uh, the Immortal Ones was a was an opera that was set in the dark, mysterious wood where there are powerful ancient forces. They can be frightening, but they're also a way of connecting with a forgotten natural order of power in England. They are the lordly ones. And in a very similar sense, I think th this wood, like they're, they're entering this woods and they've disturbed the Blair Witch, right? Like if you're going to take the, the most straightforward reading, you know, whenever um, the, the Blair Witch gets disturbed and this natural order changes, she kind of strikes out. And it's like, because yeah, wasn't it Josh who knocked over the rocks? Yeah, and they yep. and they take and they take um like she takes like one of the stick figures or whatever um and at one point they blame her and say well you didn't have to take you didn't have to take um something from her or something like you know so it, it's like this belief that they've kind of disturbed the natural order and whether that means that they've been asking too many questions and pushing into this um almost like sunset town where you know which is an old um you know like uh you know KKK slash like southern concept of you know black people enter a town and everyone's kind of friendly and and courteous or whatever during the day and then at night of course they get lynched like in, yeah. a, in a very in a very similar sense like people are kind of you know they're at the beginning of it where she's introducing the town she's like oh well no one wants to talk about this even though it happened in the 1940s it, you have to ask yourself um asking those questions or pushing into it and trying to find out what happened or what, whatever questions that they were asking did they go too far and are the village like are the people who live in the area around Burkittsville kind of fucking with them and trying to scare them away from finding out you know whatever information about their story because it's kind of a sunset town like that's another and and I think the similar like deliverance reference like it, it's just like that kind of um connection to that and I'm just gonna totally. go with a soft defense of um Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows um because because somewhere <laughs> in there actually is a good movie just not what yeah. we saw. What we saw was an incomprehensible mess. I understand that. I keep watching that movie for some reason. Don't ask me why. I, I can't explain it. Every couple of years, I'm just like, oh, I should watch this movie. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was terrible. Why did I do that? <laughs> um, but, You're but, a um, uh, One of the things about the film is, is that they, they um, kind of uh, t talk about how, like, you know, the, the um, uh, about perspective and uh, tourism in the town after mm -hmm. the Blair Witch came out and each character was supposed to represent uh, a different archetype of fan of the, uh, um, of the film. A mm. And uh, like I said, it, it, it's a, it's a hot mess. The original script was supposed to be really tight. Um, the studio got a hold of it and made it into this, this hot mess of a movie. Um, uh, and um, it's got the star of justified in it. Cause I know me and Forrest were talking about justified briefly before the show started. 
Really? Um, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was like one of his uh, early performances before, you know, anybody knew who he was. Yeah. Um, so this is this is the 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 directors of um to get through a couple of these clips because these are ones that I thought were all interesting to talk about during this conversation. Um this is uh this is one about psychological horror and why the filmmakers themselves decided to make this as their project. Um and, and I think it kind of goes to the same thing as uh you know in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um uh Toby Hooper was talking about how oh well, you know, people just aren't making things that are scary enough for you know me as a horror fan. So I thought this was the, the next kind of uh, version of that. And I think this is a similar reaction to it, but I, I do think it's interesting to think about the psychological horror aspect of it. Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez are the co-directors of what's now the most profitable film ever made. We spoke to this entertaining duo about their fright film phenomenon, which was inspired by the In Search of Television documentaries of the 70s. You know, that's what really inspired us with Blair Witch, you know, and I had a UFO club when I was a kid and, you know, uh, there was just a, this kind of whole, this general neurosis I think people had and also a fascination with wanting to believe in that stuff. And, you know, so that was what we grew up on. That's what scared us as kids, you know, and Blair Witch is a, a definite you know, rip off of the in search of shows. Yeah, at least know? the feeling. Because yeah. I mean, you know, we remember when we were kids. You know, after you watched that show, you would be sitting there in front of the TV. You'd be like, "Holy moly, Bigfoot you see that is real!" Bigfoot running, you're like, "Oh!" And the Loch Ness yeah. monster is real, and the UFOs are real. So you know, you're sitting at home, and you're, you're like, once again, the whole window thing. Yeah. You're sitting there in your room, and all of a sudden, I had it's no like, windows in my you look over at the window, and you think, "God, imagine if the shadow of Bigfoot or some you some little alien came by, and it was just like." And then you can't look at the window anymore. You start freaking yourself out because now that you're not looking at it, you're sure that the shadow is there now. All right. It's all around us. That is fucking weird. Well, when we came up with the idea, it was, you know, it was around the latter part of 92, early 93. And, you know, there's a lot of good horror films coming out, like Freddy's Dead right. had just come out. You know, a lot so of good yeah, horror films. a lot films. of stuff competing with. with <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, there was it, nothing. Yeah, I mean, there really wasn't anything that was scaring us. I mean, it's like, okay, there are. Horror movies. That's quote, right. Quote, Talk you know, your kind shit. Kind of fun to kind of go check out and stuff like that. And it was and, scaring us that they were being made. Yeah, but but nothing that really freaked us out, like The Exorcist or The Shining or you know things that had that kind of residual effect on you when you left the theater. And so we definitely felt there was a gap. There's something that needed, to, you know, that we had an opportunity to make a scary movie that really scared you. You know, that's had the pretense of scaring you and actually scared you. You know, and you know, guys our age hadn't had anything for a while. I mean, yeah. it's been so long since something really came out and just really freaked you out at the core, you know? And so that's what we were going after with Blair Witch is, you know, getting down back to basics, down to what really kind of freaks us out as kids and just hoped everyone else would kind of tap into that too. Fucking go! Oh, Ed and I both, you know, try to, to uh, you know, uh, do something different with a genre that we felt was kind of, you know, maybe getting a little old over time. We started talking about horror films and what kind of films scared us when we were little kids. And we had kind of the same horror films, you know, The Shining and The Exorcist. So we felt Blair was in that same spirit, something that was a psychological horror, which we feel is, is, is much scarier than, you know, just getting a knife in the, in the neck or something like that. What bugs me out is that we're so damn deep in the woods and people are gonna try and, and come out here and mess with us, then they gotta have something wrong with them, and I'm not gonna play with that. But how do we know it was people? Well, even if it wasn't, I'm not gonna play with that either.
Yes, I have something to say about this. So, <laughs> no, no, um, <laughs> psychological horror. I just personally, I find more terrifying. Just me as a person, Carly. Um, but I think with this film in particular, and we were talking about this with Event Horizon as well. My sort of participation in the fleshing out of the antagonisms as the viewer is actually what makes the psychological terror that much more visceral for me because I am actually like involved in the production of those feelings. Like anytime there is a question left to me about what a certain thing could be or, you know, um, the teeth, right? Like when there, when there isn't an answer given, and this was to your point earlier, Andy, when there isn't an answer given and I am left to sort of imagine something either specific or nebulous, that is, I'm that much more invested in what's going on. Like I'm literally investing my own mental and emotional energy in the production of, of the, the, the feelings of the film. And so that I think also adds to a level of vulnerability that I have watching this movie that I just don't have when it's all just laid out for me and I might be anticipating a jump scare or, or what have you. And I, I mean, I think it's a, I, I don't think necessarily that in that sense that you have to leave the ending ambiguous because I think that um, there's a similar thing when people are kind of, I guess, unraveling mysteries like that genre of filmmaking. I think as a viewer, you kind of feel invested in trying to solve that mystery. But I do agree that in this case, it makes it all that much more terrifying because whatever's going on in your head and, you know, it, it takes faith from the filmmaker that like the filmmakers that, you know, their audience is going to have enough imagination that whatever they come up with in their own head is more terrifying than yes. whatever they could have thought of. But like, I, I do think that mysteries work for the same reason that you kind of all of a sudden are invested in trying to solve the mystery and, uh, figure out who did it as much as you're, you know, um, invested in the story itself. Yeah. Yes, completely. I'm not sure that everyone shares our opinion of that because I just Googled the Blair Witch Project and there's like a little thing that comes up that just says analysis. And it's like eight articles in a row from different sources that are all the Blair Witch Project ending explained. Yeah. YouTube <laughs> is like that too. I was, uh, yeah. you know, looking through uh, YouTube videos. Um, Mostly because, like, uh, I, I listened to an Australian what guy who, like, does, like, a top 10 list of, like, things you Ooh. don't know about a movie, uh, which is usually a lot of fun and just full of just bad jokes and stuff. Um, yeah. But, but uh, well, I mean, like, Australians have, like, a weird sense of humor. Um, they do. We know they do. we know one. We know this. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, no. I know quite a few. Um, uh, they've all ghosted me. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no, I, I, uh, I'm working on a script and, and I have an Australian in it. And um, I think I went a little too overboard with the uh, uh, with the slang. And, and uh, <laughs> you seem to be doing all right. When we had uh, Renee on the other day, you guys. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I also bribed her with artwork. So, you know, I, okay. <laughs> at any point, do you use the word plaga? Yeah, that's my only question for you. I don't recall. Um I don't think I did that in the script. Okay, just like stick that in your cap and maybe come back okay. to it. <laughs> no, I did call somebody a cunt, so you know. That was great. That was, but you must, yeah. We had a we had um Renee Ruin on. Uh, what was it? I think it was last week. 
we had yeah, it on to talk like about Friday. Yeah, to talk about we. I've done so many episodes of this show in like a week. <laughs> yeah, you've been you've oh. been doing a lot this week. And the, and the Addy blurs it all together, so it's just like one yeah. continuous podcast. Yeah, no, my whole my whole life is a podcast. Sometimes I find myself talking, <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second, no one's listening to this. No, but um, I I'm just watching so, YouTube. What's what's going on? <laughs> why am I talking? Why am I talking to Joe Rogan? Why are we? Why are we, we're not having? It. <laughs> are we oh no. Um, no, I, so I, we, we had this talk with her and then, you know, she started like introducing the word cunt. And then we, we had a conversation about how much easier it is to use that word in, uh, Australia than it ever will be to use it here. For sure. I feel like I'm one of those women that probably uses it more than other women that I know, but but when I do, it's for good reason. So it lands. <laughs> it you sounds. Know? It just sounds a little bit. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about this. I think it sounds a little bit harsher when you remove, uh, like the the European or the Australian accent from it. It just feels more natural yeah. coming from like an Irish tongue or an Australian tongue. But... It's also really fun to call women um, gashes, which I did recently. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm gonna get canceled. <laughs> I, I just watched Sons of Anarchy recently, and it was, that like really stood out to me was was that. And I'm just like, yeah. Are even American? Like, like, do Americans even do that? No, no. I mean I did, but yeah. Have Have <laughs> any of you seen the uh, the 2016 Gone sideways? Have any of you seen the 2016 Adam Wingard Blair Witch, the like reboot? No. no. Okay, I have. No, nah. Well, so I, I only bring it up because we're talking about like you know the the psychological terror and like you know filling in the blanks. And the one thing that like really frustrates me about it, um, there's a lot of things, but the thing that frustrates me the most, uh, because I, I think Simon Barrett's a pretty talented screenwriter and I think he does horror pretty well. He usually knows what he's doing. Um, is that they they kind of have to you know by nature of the the film that they're doing like come down definitively on on a specific explanation for what happened well they actually the have film. a they actually have someone playing the blair witch right um right yeah and like they yeah, they like I've seen, give I've you seen the, the clips of like i mean like oh the blair witch project this person plays the blair witch yeah it looks like like samara from the ring or something like <laughs> and that and it wasn't but... richard lewis so like i'm not interested <laughs> <laughs> Andy's out. Why do, they yeah. keep, why do they keep thinking I'm a witch? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, and like, and and so in in the the movie, you know, like it's it's turned into like legend. So you can take it or leave it. Like, there's the explanation that maybe it's just like word of mouth, and that it's it's evolved into a particular explanation over time. But they give you an answer anyway. Like, there's like the scene where they're sitting around the campfire, you know, around their tents, and like they say, "Oh yeah, like this guy was." possessed by the witch and then when they went out into the woods like the witch like I, th I think they end up like, saying that like the witch possessed josh that's dumb yeah. i don't like that and that he like they ended up killing everyone like like they just like no uh and it's it, it undercuts everything that movie tries to do it's not interesting and and just like yeah it it's not a good it's not a good movie unfortunately well i mean i i think that a similar thing comes up in that uh, in the sci-fi documentary that they release and this is a good segue because i do want to talk about the marketing as kind of a final um, yes. like a, a final conversation addition i guess to this um but i think that in that sci-fi documentary they talk about how um and, and this comes up in the movie the guy that kind of was living up on the mountain and like led the kids up to his 
like did the kind of like the Pied Piper thing and like led the kids up to his <laughs> mountain Glenn Greenwald style um, mansion <laughs> <laughs> up on the mountain. Yeah, and um, not so saying that's what, not saying that's what Glenn Greenwald is doing, but you know, <laughs> where do you think the children came from? Oh, <laughs> you're not not saying it. <laughs> no, so like uh, he's like living on the mountain in like this mansion, leads the children up there. And then, um, you know, all of a sudden there's a bunch of dead kids and he comes down. And he's like, oh, I've, I've just finished. And the guy says, oh, well, no, like no one in town knew what he was talking about. And they found all the dead kids. And in that documentary, he claims like they have the old footage or whatever. And they cast way more people in that sci-fi documentary than they did. For <laughs> they the really actual did. Chunk of that sci-fi documentary is from the two and a half hour cut of this movie. Mm -hmm. um, oh, so I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. yeah, I didn't, I yeah. Didn't yeah that that before sense. before they got down to a tight ninety minutes, it was it was half hours long. There was a okay. whole subplot that um, Josh and Heather were um, exes, and, and that's oh. what uh, some of the tension from them were. See, they don't um, they don't touch on that in the in no. The and cutting that out, I think, helps. Like, it really yes, does. big time, yeah. totally, that's absolutely terrestrial bullshit. We don't need that. <laughs> it's um. So yeah. So. In, in that though they, they interviewed the guy and then they showed the footage of the guy being like i'm the um he's like he's like i'm i'm the guy that um that 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 murdered those kids and i should be killed but a witch possessed me and so there's like that weird moment it's the there's the 1940s um like whatever and then but then it also leads you to the question like you know is this just like a son of sam situation where the guy is kind of blaming his serial killing on oh I got told to do this by the Blair Witch, which isn't definitively coming down. The thing I respect about that documentary is that during the documentary they they debate like is this a hoax? Is this real? And they have multiple like experts. I mean it's just people that they you know talk to I guess to make the movie, but um, multiple experts debating like oh this is bullshit. And they have someone literally be like they you know like this is a hoax. This is clearly a hoax. And then someone else say well we found it in a place where you know I don't think someone could have hid it there like. Mm -hmm. expecting somebody to find it i don't think it's a hoax and then someone else is like well you know as the share like they have all these different people kind of debating whether or not the movie is real before anyone's even seen the movie yeah which is kind of i mean it's ballsy number one but like yes number two it kind of it, it adds to this like well now i want to see it and i want to know whether this person's right or whether this person's right or how i come down on this argument that's now going on on tv in front of me <laughs> rather than in on an actual movie screen um yeah it's brilliant so this is the uh, so the, I, I cut a clip from this thing where, where um, Mark Commode, who shoots stuff for the BBC, was explaining mm -hmm. how the the um, sci-fi documentary was was handled. I think who, who was also in Psycho, right? Mark Commode <laughs> was he the toilet? Yes. Like all the best horror films, The Blair Witch Project was essentially sold to its audience as a true story. Something that really happened, or really could have happened. It was helped by The Curse of the Blair Witch, a short-form documentary comprising off-cuts and outtakes which purported to follow up on the disappearance of the filmmakers, and which was first aired on America's sci-fi channel as an apparently straight piece of investigative journalism. Smart move. Well, Heather... Uh, was uh, probably one of the two or three best students that, that, I've, that I've had the pleasure of, of teaching. Um, she was committed, she was energetic, she was very creative. She had uh, submitted a proposal to me to do a, 
short documentary on uh, the legend of, of Blair Witch. Uh, it was something I had never heard of before, to tell you the truth. Josh feels it's necessary to look at the map now, even though I know where we're going and we're going straight ahead up there. If you've known where we're going, we wouldn't be hiking like we're in the middle of the fucking woods. You some of it is, some of it is off-trail hiking. Uh, I have oh, yeah, harbored some guilt uh, because as I looked back over the uh, proposal later, uh, I realized that I had neglected to notice that Heather had suggested going into the woods for a couple of days working on, on the film. The only piece of evidence found by police was Joshua Leonard's car parked on Black Rock Road. Uh, we checked the car over completely, never found any clues with the vehicle. Uh, we checked the uh, with witnesses that may have seen the film students and never could, we, uh, we can never locate them. Of course, the mock documentary format is actually nothing new. I mean, back in the 30s, Orson Welles was scaring a bunch of radio listeners with his War of the Worlds broadcast. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences. Hell yeah. That was fun. <laughs> I, I like that there is the Mark Kermode documentary about yes. the fake documentary about yeah. the about the, the found footage documentary film. Well, it goes on endlessly. I mean, that's really the internet age, right? Like, yeah, and now we're podcasting about the documentary about the documentary about the fake documentary. So <laughs> we are the top. We are still spinning. That's right. Yes. That's Perpetually. True. But it's also, I think, a reason why you couldn't make this film now is that I, I don't think that you could keep that, I guess, hoax going for long enough at this no. point to like actually put it on cable TV. Like, number one, I think I think creative process is destroyed by um, lawyers having to get involved. And like, you know, if anything's going to scare the shit out of people on TV, they have to make sure that there's like 10 different yes. escape hatches. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I, I also think that, you know. I, I it's interesting to think about like the the genre of uh, creepy pasta, like those yeah. YouTube videos that you know it's never going to be anything that gets on TV, or and it's also I mean the Reddit stories too, but like you know that whole yep. genre of both literature and short films and everything else that it's not no one's ever has the pretension that it's going to get on TV or it's going to be released as a movie, so they can just kind of release Andrew, something. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, the governor of New York there, Cuomo was being a complete creepy pasta about it. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> it's, I'm not okay, I'll, give, I'll give you that one. It's a little creepy, but the girls <laughs> did all seem to have finished their spaghetti and meatballs. Oh so <laughs> that photo is cursed. Speaking of curses. <laughs> that post is cursed. Um yeah, the the sci-fi mockumentary is fucking brilliant. I love it. Um I love it almost as much as the movie. And I think like the you know if we're talking about the marketing not just on some in some of the online and like out of home um advertising that they did but particularly yeah, I, got, I got a final i got a final clip after we talk about this part that is going to get into that too that, that's great because there's a whole lot of stuff there mm -hmm. um but particularly that they involved cable television like you know this is a formula that we are we as uh you know savvy consumers of of the 21st century are not um are not alien to at this point but like back in 1999 that they had all of these touch points and were doing the work to keep 
the mystery up, like in not just like a little bit of work, but a lot of work to keep the mystery up. Like I, I found sort of that immersive consumer experience to be really, really effective when I went and actually saw the movie. And I mean, I think also there's kind of a blind spot to things that we see on TV as much as people get very upset and they're like, oh, this isn't true. This is like fake news. This is on TV. I don't trust cable. We still really fucking trust. Like if, if someone says something on TV, it's given a level of uh, credence and expertise. Um, <laughs> yeah. so it's given a level of credence and expertise that you wouldn't get. Like if someone just found a video on the internet, like we still kind of have yes. this weird, um, extremely like i guess I, I would say um elitist uh mentality when it comes to like you know something on 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 cable tv has to be at least i mean whether or not you're going to say it's fake whether or not you're going to say it's falsified at least kind of from a legitimate place to start with um in some capacity <laughs> yeah then we come back to that idea of trust in institutions right yeah yeah and and you know, so I think that documentary works really well because of also just the amount of excess information that they mm -hmm. um, bombard you with. Like you're watching through thing, and then they're all of a sudden they're tracking the Blair Witch through, you know, the 1700s and the witch trials that are still going on. They they claim in the woods, and then you have the weird 70s like style um, occult guy that like is doing right. one of those like yeah. overly cheesy uh, like. Like, oh, I'm a witch. And, you know, one of those, like, <laughs> you have that guy talking about how, you know, everyone just doesn't really understand how witchcraft works and it's not evil. And then you have, like, the, the town historian giving you information. And then you have, it goes all the way through to, like, the 1800s. And you have, like, things that are, and who knows how much of it is. I mean, assumably, I guess the, the cuts are probably, I can't imagine that all of those are from the filming of the movie. Like, I can't imagine that all of those characters, because they really, they bombard you. I, Andy, I know you didn't watch the, the documentary. Um, yeah, well, again. I haven't seen the two and a half hour cut either. So, you know. Yeah. Well, the, so they, they bombard yeah. you with like 50 different characters. Like you're yeah. getting. Yes. You're, you're getting like siblings and um, people who probably that is probably from the original, you know, Blair Witch Cut. But then you're also getting these weird experts. You're getting like some cult witch guy from the 70s that supposedly has a show. Mm -hmm. There's a whole backstory about like he's on TV talking about witchcraft and then you have like the town expert guy and they're just bombarding with character after character and then all these archive documents that seem to be like it seems to be like some history channel shit but like you know what I mean like but it still seems to be like real like they, they procured real documents that are like oh this is a document that says this they have someone like denying well this document isn't real like we just found it like don't listen to this they have someone else saying don't listen to this like it provides you with so much information by the end of it that your brain kind of goes haywire and it's like well whether this is real or not like there's definitely some big like history and mythology behind it like even knowing that this is a sci-fi documentary made for the Blair Witch Project your brain still short circuits when you're given that yes. much information in that short amount of time yeah. <laughs> and this is like what we were talking about last night at a certain point like you are invested enough that the like veracity of what you're consuming becomes like a non-issue you're kind of like well i'm just here i'm here for the magic you're here for the say. magic <laughs> so i wonder if you know the original cut of this film was doing something more like metatextual like uh like a house of leaves type thing with the framing where it was like a documentary that incorporated the footage that the kids had filmed out in the woods you know but the, the other thing that makes this really effective to me 
is that you know one of the things with found footage movies is there's always something that kind of like betrays the fact that they're a movie right like uh especially in like the the digital age like the 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 camera angles are a little bit too clean the editing is a little bit too uh neat there's always like those like you know suspension of disbelief moments where like you you just know with certainty it's like no one would continue filming in this particular moment uh and to me this film Blair Witch is the one that I think that does that the best and to my eye and to my ear there isn't a single cut or like uh you know camera angle or or technique utilized here that ever ever betrays the fact that like it's all just like shot by the people in the woods like it just feels more authentic than anything else in the genre yeah and and i think the antagonism they feel towards heather throughout the entire thing for keeping the camera rolling really Mm -hmm. builds that because like you know they're just kind of filming them hanging out and if they had you know if if it was intense moment and they were like turn off the camera turn off the camera then maybe you you would have to suspend your 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 you know you'd have to like decide well all right well maybe they're just kind of doing that as a way to you know explain why the camera suddenly cuts out but the fact that it's moments where they're just kind of hanging out and they're like why the fuck do you keep filming and she's you know she's just obsessed with like getting the entire thing like it's like oh well you know we're just gonna look back at this and laugh and like these Mm -hmm. tense moments that don't that aren't terrorizing tense moments they're just um tense in the in the way that any kind of group dynamic is i think uh adds to it because over time you're like well yeah it makes sense like she wants to be a filmmaker she's gonna keep filming things and then uh, towards the end of it she finally goes it's all i have left and like that that moment of like real human emotion where you're, you're realizing like yeah like it is all you have like all you have left is like maybe the idea that at the end of this as as terrorized as you've been your friend disappeared whatever the fuck maybe you'll get like a a documentary that finally explains something like mm-hmm. you know just continuing to film it and the antagonism that they both have towards her but especially mike has towards her and like you know you know it, it kind of makes sense that the entire thing is filmed from that logic and then like you guys said um which I didn't even think about watching it the first time. Like, um, you know, when, when they actually have the light, they're using the camera as a light, like, yep. and there's no other yes. light source. Right. Yeah. Like this is the thing, right? And like audio. Exactly. Yeah. So like you have the narrative justification for why they're shooting, right? Like you have the psychology of Heather and they explain it and show that she's the kind of character that will continue to like keep the cameras rolling even when she shouldn't. Uh, so that's explained away, you know, like you, it, that starts to make a little bit of sense. And then the other thing, you know, specifically in those like last moments of the movie, um, and we get into this a little bit on our, our podcast episode, but it's it's executed so well and so technically uh, from, from a place of like technical authenticity, right? Like at a certain point, they stop using the dat, right? Like they stop using like the actual like audio device that Mike's been using. So all of the audio is coming from the high eight camera that they're shooting on in color with the light on it, right? The film camera has the black and white, and then specifically at the very end where each one of them has a separate camera that they're utilizing. Um, I think Mike has the Hi8, and Heather has the film camera. And so when we are with Heather... In the 16 millimeter. Right, in in the 16 millimeter camera, we're like upstairs at one point, and she's like kind of panning around the room and seeing the like bloody handprints or whatever they are on the wall. 
And yeah, which, is, like, which is another moment that's fucking terrifying because yeah. they don't they don't stop to explain it to you. <laughs> no, don't stop terrifying. To, you have yeah. no idea what's going on. They're but, they're so, children's they're children's hands. Yes, and you're told at the beginning it's of the movie. Baby hands. Yeah, and you're it's told at the beginning hands of the covered movie. In blood. <laughs> you're told at the beginning of the movie. Oh, there's a bunch of kids murdered here. They don't condescend to you to be like. Hey, remember when there was a bunch of kids murdered yeah. here? That's what's supposed to have been the terrifying thing. The kids were laughing. Look at that hands. It just flies past you. It's just there. And it's in a moment that's so fast that like if you blink, you'll miss it. And the fact that you don't miss it makes it more terrifying. Yes, 100%. And when we're seeing that, we are hearing Heather scream, but she's far away because we realize that the audio that we're getting is from the high eight with mike down the stairs it's so good and so like throughout the like that last you know couple of minutes and in, in that climax you hear her screams start to get closer and closer to the sound source because yeah. the camera that mike has is already on the ground in the basement as she starts coming towards it it just like it never betrays the fact that like <laughs> i think they're donald <laughs> trump hampers that probably is yeah covered in like barbecue sauce <laughs> ketchup for sure for sure but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just like, there's such like a, an attention to detail and, and so much of them striving for this like level of verisimilitude, like it, it never betrays it within the film itself. It works so, so well. It's also yeah, it one, adds to the mania. Camera, no, but one camera goes down and the other camera goes down. Like, yeah. you're, so that part is also really, really kind of terrifying. Like you're yes. kind of watching, like, cause you know, it, it forces you into whatever Mike's looking at. And you're and you're watching him scream like Josh, Josh, I'm coming. So he's running down the stairs. And then there's that moment where the camera suddenly, you know, fucks up, and you don't know what happened because obviously you don't. You're not with him. So um, yeah, and he Heather runs stopped. down. Yeah, and then so Heather yeah. has to run down to him, and then you're all of a sudden in her point of view, and then you see Mike standing up against the wall as if he's like one of the kids whose handprints you just saw. Like it's an effective way of of showing that like each of these characters, as the camera cuts out, whatever happens to them. Like it's it, their story is over and you're suddenly having to be stuck into the, the perspective of another, of another character, which is, I think, something that since Blair Witch, there are movies, I think, that have taken a not um not a like not in a way that any kind of found footage type thing. But there are movies, I think, that where you're kind of forced into one character's perspective and then another character has to get killed off and then you're forced into like another character's perspective, but not in the way that you are in this. Totally. And the just to go back to the audio piece coupled with the perspectives that you're talking about when we close that sequence out in the house at the very end of the film when we finally switch to heather's perspective uh visually and we're seeing everything from the 16 millimeter in the black and white she is still a disembodied voice because the audio from her camera is not picking her up directly. So it adds to this like just feeling of melee where like you hear her screaming somewhere in the house, but you are also watching what she is shooting as she runs down the stairs. It's like, it's unbelievably effective. And the attention to detail is is so well done um and and i think like 
the movie couldn't have ended more perfectly. Yeah, it's like one of the most startling final images of like any horror film. It's and just... and it's and it's nothing. It's just like a guy looking in a corner, right? Like yeah. it's so but it's good. terrifying. It's it's, it's so fucking <laughs> he's, so he's, he's stood up against the corner, which I mean, you know, is kind of out of context, I think is almost meaningless, but after the context of like the kids being stood up that way against the corner when each kid was being murdered by the witch, like yeah. it makes it terrifying. And yeah, the fact and that you can't down, like it's just, yeah. it's fucked. It's just the uncanniness of it too. Right. Like this is a character who's been like extremely vocal, like very like on it, you know, like he's certainly the one that's like, uh, I, I think the, from the, from the get go, the most like dubious of the entire enterprise. And he's just like there <laughs> yeah. silent and, and staring. All right, so this is this is the the website side of it, um, and I, I think that so I talked to you, I, I messaged you guys about this last night, but I think that there is a moment within the late '90s where, and, and I remember this like as a kid in the late '90s, like um, you know, a, like the internet. There were there were two sides of the internet, right? The internet mm-hmm. suddenly is you know the source of information, something like the Blair Witch Project that needs to get people to kind of share things about it amongst each other or create the story or forums like you know so all of those all of the, that part of the internet's on one side and there's a second part of the internet which is this um idea that all of a sudden like kids are getting kidnapped and whether or not that's yeah. true in, in any <laughs> in any source this movie definitely the subtext of it is that it capitalizes on that like yeah. you know cuz the whole thing is that the Blair Witch uh is like the Pied Piper and leads kids away with her into the woods and then kills the kids. But at the same time, that documentary on sci-fi kind of does a similar thing where they make the kids at the forefront, like the murders of all the kids and how they've died in different ways, kind of the forefront of this conversation. Um, so I, I think that, um, I, I think that uh, this is interesting that they, they also capitalize on the internet in two, in two different ways, I think. So this is the, the website part of it. I was using satellite tracking to play cat and mouse with the cast. The filmmakers also used the internet to draw the audience into their nightmare. Publicizing the movie with a Blair Witch website, which treated the events depicted as real, they fortuitously sparked off a network of mirror sites, all of which got the world believing in the mythology of the Blair Witch. I mean, why bother with huge advertising budgets when word of mouth, as it's now referred to, can put you in touch with armies of fans convinced that the truth is out there? We came up with the, the Blair Witch legend, and we just wanted the, everybody to have a real good uh, sense of the backstory, you know, of why they were out there uh, examining this. And uh, it just grew and grew, and we have a r- really rich myth right now that that um, you can actually uh, check out on the website, BlairWitch.com. Really, the website was kind of like a medium for the mythology, so we all created the mythology and threw it up there as kind of um, for people to find out about. Um, Ed formatted the site in such a way to where it was a kind of interactive experience. I just wanted the website to just kind of be... Uh, just this in kind of this investigative website that cre- that basically uh, treated this case as if it were real. And I think that's what people dug it. And so, you know, it just became kind of a, a playground really for, 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 for a lot of people that were interested in the movie. And it generated an incredible fan base. And really, once we got into Sundance, uh, it, it generated so much, we had so much momentum going into Sundance because of the website uh, and all the fans we had. And it was just a great experience. You know, we got a lot of good feedback when, 
when we were poor and we were, you know, we didn't know what we had. We got a lot of feedback on the email and on our discussion board saying, you know, hang in there. And, you know, I, I love this idea. You guys are, are great and this and that. And, you know, it, it kind of helps uh, in those dark times. So it was it was a great tool for us. And I don't I really don't think that the film would have done nearly as much money, you know, as but much business has done if it weren't for the website. Yeah, I mean, it's like the nascent stages of, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, guerrilla digital marketing. Like, <laughs> like I was expecting you know, something worse. <laughs> no, yeah. well, I mean, that's terrible. I hate that. Um, but whatever. Um, but when he says, like, I don't think this movie would have done as well without the website, like, he is a thousand percent right. The, the fact that they were able to generate interest and actually stretch the mystery out even further um, with the website, it, I'm, I am positive, got more people interested than if they had just done sort of a traditional ad campaign. Yeah, and there's this... Um, so along with the website, there's these posters that they release, um, mm -hmm. which I, I used one of them as a, as a tweet earlier, but... Yeah. Um, it's these missing posters. They posted them on college campuses. They posted them in different areas. Of course, they had them like you know, like given out. Like, and um, I think I think it's cut. I mean, it's cut off in this one, and it's cut off in the other one too. But at the bottom of it, a lot of times it, it said Blairwitch.com. It like yep. led people that were you know looking at these posters, which it has to really fuck with you to be like an actor in this and actually see like these images of you as a missing person. Oh my god, absolutely. <laughs> And yeah. they were not at the premiere. Like that's the other thing. Yeah, they were not at they, they were not really, at Sundance. They really stuck to the kayfabe. Like they were not at the premiere. They, I think they had the missing posters up at Sundance. They did yeah, they in Park did. City. Yeah, they did. I mean, commitment, commitment. <laughs> it must suck though. This is your first big project, and your premieres at Sundance. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're like in a hotel room. Like yeah. I guess they're having <laughs> a good time. <laughs> And I don't wow, think any of really... them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't totally. I don't think many of any of these three guys got much of a chance to to show up at Sundance after this really either. No, Heather and, they... and Mike for sure. Like Josh Leonard, I think might be the one that had like the most uh, fruitful career. And he's he's married to uh, Allison Pill as well. Oh, so, yeah. Right. So <laughs> I don't know. I when we were doing this our, our show on them last year, I tried to find any of them like in, in like a social media presence. And Josh has like an Instagram and it's just like photos of him and Allison Pill and their baby. So like <laughs> yeah, so he's doing you know, well. He's he, fine. He had a so I watched uh I watched some of um an appearance they did that was like Blair Witch 15 years later at like uh I don't know if it was Comic Con, like it was one of those it was one of those cons, like a horror con or like I don't know. It was that they have a bunch of them, so yeah, mm -hmm. so it was at one of those, and they were interviewing them, and he like, and it was Josh, and he like made some like joke where he was like, "Oh, um, you know, it really fucks me up when I'm you know dating around, and then the girl is like, oh, I watched that. My parents wouldn't let me watch that movie as a kid, and I'm like, haha, like, oh, that's fucked. You know what I mean? Like, realize like his age <laughs> versus the girls he was dating. So oh, you know, it's good that he settled down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? he's got a family. He's a he's a wife guy now. He is. He's a big time wife guy now. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that the, the website works really well to sell this. I think the nascent internet works really well to sell this. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it definitely is guerrilla digital marketing, but like it, it, in, a, in a way that's, you know, selling um, 
I think something that, you know, in the same way that, you know, the, the creepypasta phase exists from this period, I feel like on, and that's not really selling you anything except the idea that one of these stories might be true. Yes. And mm-hmm. To have a movie attached to it, I think is, is kind of the logical next step of that salesmanship. Um, Completely. Yeah, because I think the only other uh, I, I know the Matrix did something similar but very different, where they had uh, yes. comic book creators, um, which, which I, I was so excited about because they had you know just a list people, uh, Neil Gaiman, um, uh, Jeff Darrow, which which is always exciting. Jeff Darrow did also like um, uh, you know design work for the for the creatures in the movie and, and, and the yeah. comic book guy. In case you yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but, uh, you know, so, so like, uh, in the, in, in 1999, they really were kind of like feeling the oats of what you could do with internet marketing, but I don't think anybody's quite like, like, honestly, like Blair witches did it on a whole other level, um, yes. compared to, to, um, anybody else. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And you can't, like, you couldn't have done it even like four or five years earlier and you certainly couldn't have done it four or five years later either it was just like a perfect moment in time that you were able to get away with that kind of thing and and market that way and and gather this huge you know word of mouth kind of like following around this and i think the the site is still up i I feel like i remembered like being able to visit it pretty much in like its its original iteration and kind of click through and look at the like the timeline and some of the photos and clips yeah. It's like one of those uh, uh, houses that they keep for historical purposes, like yeah. right. you know, or presidential like maybe, campaigns. Maybe it's a house like deep in the woods. That they keep. Yeah, <laughs> there's still mm-hmm. kids yeah. that have their fingerprints on it. Or That's right. There's like... bloody handprints on the the, the last. <laughs> thing I, I, I was, I was say... thinking of Bill Clinton's uh, campaign uh, website from 1996, but. You know, do you boo? <laughs> that's they, there's like the way way back machine, right? Where you can go in and and see. Like I think one time. I did look for like Bob Dole's, like, I don't know why this, I was doing this, but I remember looking for like Bob Dole's like campaign website and I found it. So yeah. what the fuck? There's like a weird law about that. Uh, it's just great. Any presidential campaign will can always have that uh, website up. Like, like they will, yeah. uh, it's, it's a, it's a piece of history right there, but Bob yeah, Dole no one touches it. it. Bob Dole doesn't want you to delete Bob Dole's campaign. Bob Dole doesn't want you to delete. Yeah. No, but but like, it's actually great, you know, when you're researching these things, you can go back and be like, what does Bob Dole want you to delete? He tells you. From what I remember, he was pretty explicit about what he wanted from us. That's right. Um, Yes. um, The the only other thing I wanted to say about, about uh, your, your brilliant point for us about this sort of anxiety around children being kidnapped. um, And that also being like, a, a a cut of the internet at the time i think that was also just like part of the internet because it was a, an, another manifestation of society's anxiety like yeah. remember unsolved mysteries and like all those other shows like that where it was it was all about like you know something terrible happening and like we don't really know the answer but we're going to give you all this cool shit to think about and like maybe freak you out a little bit um And I definitely remember, like, even just as a child growing up in the 90s, like, Stranger Danger and, like, all of that being reinforced, not just by my parents and by my teachers and, you know, mentors and all of those things, but also by media on a regular basis. Oh, cable news. No, cable news capitalized yes. mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, of course. Completely. And print media And, and before that, it was also, like, 2020 uh, to, yes. you know, 
uh like, like 2020 was like a real news show too uh yep. like yep. you know but but they would uh they, they, they would always do those uh missing cases or, or they'd have like one person who'd do like a, a long form story about a missing case and they were always really well done too like uh what, yeah it, they weren't doing it every week you know they they They'd spend well, front, weeks on front this line, right? Like frontline. Frontline, yeah. yeah. That was Mine another too, one. Like, yeah, like it's it, it was constant, and it's really. I mean, it's capitalizing on the internet in two different ways, and capitalizing on the same forums in two different ways because all of a sudden, like anyone can talk to anybody. Like you know, what I mean, you could be talking to someone in another country on a forum, and you're both. I like. I remember my parents being freaked out about this when I was a kid, and I don't want to keep you know bringing up stuff. But but like as someone that you know was a kid during this time period, like. I remember my parents being freaked out that you could talk to anybody on a forum. And then what if it's somebody with like, and we didn't even have cable when I was growing up. So it's not yeah. like they were, you know, it, it's like they, they were online and they would see like, Oh, well, like it says on this newspaper, or this newspaper, like somebody got kidnapped after talking to someone online and they, they bribed them with something. And, and they, and they touch on that in the actual sci-fi documentary where the guy, they say, how did you get the kids to come with you? And he's like, Oh, well I offered them candy or something, which yeah. is the same stranger danger thing where it's like somebody will pull up after talking to you online and like be in a van and offer you candy as a little kid and then you, you want to put my candy. puppy yeah like <laughs> but this was especially pervasive with like chat rooms right yeah. like i was like seven and like on the internet just like going into chat i was like playing hey arnold games on nickelodeon's website but i was also like going into chat rooms and being like who's in here what the fuck is this mm -hmm. You know, like at seven, I don't, I'm going to be as safe as I'm going to be. But like, I definitely remember my mom being like, you're not allowed to go into chat rooms. Like, yeah, someone will hurt you. Yeah. And I was just like, okay. But that, that connection of like cyberspace being a dangerous place and it also having implications in like the meat world was just starting to formulate. Um, and now, you know, say what you will about and that then, idea. Yeah. But... And, then, and then this movie, you know, I mean, on a very, I mean, I, I agree with what you guys said in the, in the episode you guys did with, with, uh, it being kind of a extremely nuanced movie, but in a very nuanced mm -hmm. way, it does, it takes on that, like kids getting kidnapped, um, yeah. uh, idea. And then, you know, and, and it kind of uh i guess historicizes it in terms of like kids yes. have always gotten kidnapped like in the 1700s yeah. kids were getting kidnapped in the 1940s kids were getting kidnapped but then you know knowing full well that on like the internet is what they're using to market it it, it jumps onto that point to be like well we're going to market this in forums but also like we're going to scare the shit out of you knowing that you know you could get like abducted <laughs> as a kid or your kids can yes. be abducted yeah completely and like this fear just like it evolves over time, right? Like, I mean, this has always been there. One of the, you know, earlier examples than this, I think it was like the satanic panic, you know, but it's like building your entire sort of like... Which this also capitalizes on. It does. It, yes. cap it capitalizes on that. And like, it's, it's, it's a stroke of like either, you know, genius or just sort of like random, like synch synchronous, like creativity. But... And you can't, that... and even in those interviews, you can't tell which one it is. Yeah, completely. And like, <laughs> just the idea that like, they add this like element of like, oh, you know, like fear around the children, right? Like, that is, yeah, pervasive during the satanic panic. It's pervasive during like the the advent of like online culture. It takes root in like conspiracy theories of modern day as well. Like there is like a, a like a, a direct line here, right? So 
a lot of the the seeds of like QAnon conspiracy. And it's grappling with the same thing, right? Like I I really like um Matt Chrisman on this topic of conspiracy theories, you know, when he talks about like them being a manifestation of uh, a populace that has like a complete lack of power uh, when it comes to any sort of institutional change, any sort of like cultural shift in like the narrative or the way that like things move in their lives. And so they start to build these explanations for why bad things happen or why things happen the way they do and why that powerlessness exists. And they start to root it in this sort of like uh, ornate, like intrinsic evil as opposed to like, you know, things with names and addresses that are creating creating the chaos. Yeah, that's which, a which lever is... that's also exercised by the governmental apparatus, right? That like by saying the things, you know, the reason things are bad, the reason bad things happen in the world is because there exists good and there exists evil. Not like, you know, because like, we don't fucking give you health insurance or we, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not because yeah. people are being immiserated. So it's also and, and it's, something that's extremely telling that just two years later, I mean, we, you know, the war on terror starts like, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. completely. And, and that like that deep rooted sense of the things, the things that are bad that are happening are happening because of pure evil whether that evil is in the form of like Saddam Hussein or or the devil or the devil or, or whatever the cabal fuck. of pedophiles and baby blood drinkers like it's it's all. Yeah. And it's just skewing. It's skewing, you know, responsibility from the, the levers of power that are actually creating the problems. Yeah. and But I think I think a, a really interesting um, moment that occurs around the time of this movie is Y2K, which kind of absolves all all humans from like all all sense of good all sense of evil all sense of really anything except for a fear of the unknown so right. like y2k happens and and the idea is that you know um like if all computers fail society starts to fail and it, it's as if this can like the system of computers that we've created and the internet i mean i guess maybe you could blame al gore for it that's really the only person <laughs> i blame al gore for everything so <laughs> god damn it al gore um, but like, there's this, like, you know, so it kind of absolves, it, it's kind of perfect in that way. Like if society had completely crashed during Y2K, like it's not the government, it's not big right. business. It, right. Maybe, maybe it's big business trusting technology too much, but <laughs> God damn it, Al Gore. Um, <laughs> but like, I, so I, I, on that level, like suddenly there's this moment where people are like, listen, we've just trusted computers too much. No one's to blame for this. It's not evil. And I think in, in a similar way with the Blair Witch Project, like the, the fact that the ending's left unknown, like you don't know if they've been taken by evil. You don't know if, if their paranoia has just gotten to the most of them. I mean, for all you fucking know, they've eaten mushrooms off the thing. And then the entire thing <laughs> is like, you know, as it was in, in, in the ancient, like, you know, uh, both the witch trials that tried to blame this on and, um, like the, the dancing frenzy, like when they had the plague where everybody just kept dancing and people didn't stop dancing until they died of like dehydration and, and hunger and whatever. Like a similar thing where it's like, oh, you like all of a sudden they've eaten food off the ground. And then, you know, like you don't you don't like it could be one of a million things that is left up to you to decide because you're you're in this moment of uh, millennial malaise, as, as you guys like. I, I, I love that term coined like that, like this this moment of just 
the unknown being fully in front of us and then the, the calendar year kind of being pushed out in front of it as this is why we're at this point of everything being unknown. It's not because our systems are failing. It's because, you know, the calendar is about to change from 1999 to 2000. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> completely which uh i mean i don't know about y'all i remember i decided if i was gonna if, if the world was gonna end i was gonna go see moxie fruvis and um <laughs> drove out to buffalo new york to uh uh to see them play and um uh saw them three nights in a row once in northampton massachusetts and then two nights in buffalo <laughs> nice. yeah. right on that's the yeah way and it. they had a uh a, and uh, they actually had on stage with them a non-Y2K compliant computer. So after the stroke of midnight, <laughs> they can check to see, you know, if the world has ended. Don't worry. This computer is computer's meant to resist. It's, I, it's I, I, non-Y2K compliant computer. I love that they, like, built that into the, the like, uh, draw of their show. <laughs> well, they, they were always doing something really fun. Like, like that's oh, yeah. why, you know, you had to go see them, like, 43 times like I did. Um uh, because it's kind of like it's kind of like in, in zombie movies where they they take the teeth or something out of a zombie and they make the zombie like non-compliant you know what i mean and they have <laughs> zombie they're like we want to we want to study how this works so we're going to you know take it out of the 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 zombie hive mind by removing the mouth <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it is you're right for us exactly right <laughs> sorry right, so uh, yeah yeah no oh no i i was i have i have one more thing that i, I was thinking about as we were having this conversation sound I off i have never react uh let me try this again it was just a like a, a little fleeting thought that came to me but uh one of the things that i noticed this time around on this watch is just the ways in which in in that moment of like duress and like total anxiety, the ways in which all the characters kind of lean into uh, both their like sort of uh, capitalist obligations and also like into their consumerism, you know, like two things that they like take solace in. Like when they're in the tent, they're fan fantasizing about cheeseburgers and like mashed potatoes um, yeah. and cigarettes a lot. But also, would you say? Like, would you say in the most Adam Curtis way possible? They retreated into themselves. <laughs> they retreated into themselves. Exactly. Really well done. Um, but then the other thing that they do as well, you know, like when they're starting to get worried about being lost in the woods, I can't remember if it's like right after or just before they talk about their human relationships and the way that like their girlfriends will like know or their parents will know, etc. But they also like before that mention like when i don't show up at work they're gonna know and like i have to show up at work and like also the thing that's like we rented these cameras we owe these cameras back we've got to get them back and they're like feeling anxiety specifically around their their like debt obligations and also their like labor obligations before anything else strikes Which their I mind mean, of, like, as as like a as like a you know former media film student is a real anxiety when it is a major cameras at the right time it's like number one you get like an angry stare but number two like they're like you might not like they try to scare you by saying you might not be able to take the camera right 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 right, right. <laughs> no, i remember my, my uh, college roommate took some some film classes and he just um what he'd do is he'd check out a camera and then leave it in the room and then just let me go at it, just like fill up tape after tape after tape for him, and I would just go like crazy. Um, he had a uh, black and white. Take it into camera the woods and got like 
four hours straight of me just like lip syncing to like Marky Mark, MC Hammer. Um. Does this still exist? Can Is we this see this? Is this on the way, way back I, machine on the internet somewhere? I, I have no clue what he did with it. So um, that, that was uh, probably his, his, his then. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know where he, this was. Uh, this was like 96, 97. Like I bet it's called take home, bet a take it's home called, project for all of us. I bet it's called J. Andrew versus the world. <laughs> I know we were always doing crazy things. You can, you can uh, there's a few crazy pictures of us uh, from college found my uh, Facebook. Um, no, but I, I think, I think that forest, <laughs> I think Aaron, you're right. <laughs> you're right forest. about the, the sense of, um, you know, the, these kind of capitalist obligations kind of taking over as their one thing, tethering them to, their life as they get absolutely terrified the other thing is obviously um like the the idea of family and like the girlfriend that probably doesn't give a fuck whether josh disappears or not <laughs> and like right you know just the, these different things that are really their last grasp of things and i think it's really telling that at one point when they're when uh when mike is mocking her with the, or i don't one of them is mocking her with the camera i can't remember i, I think it's, i think it's mike oh it's just when he's he's like yeah he's like he's like no one's here to find you and he's like oh you're lost in the woods no one's here to find you something something no one's here and he's really just tormenting her and she finally says like she breaks heather and she's like it's all i have left like this feeling that the only thing that really you know is tethering her to society right now um in, in this moment of like ultimate terror is the fact that she wants to be a filmmaker and she has to complete this film and the, the thought that like if she can complete this film and if something can come out of it, this is all worth it. But otherwise, like everything is lost. It, it, it's, you know, I mean, as much as it's, it shows that she's kind of creative, like, you know, the, the desires she wants are, are more creative, I guess, than um, it's not like she's like, oh, I want to get back to my job at a grocery store. They might miss me. It's, you know, the idea that like I, I maybe I could turn this into becoming a, an actual filmmaker and not just a film student, which I, I think it's I think it's also telling that. um the filmmakers themselves, the directors are not that far removed from being film students themselves. Like, you know what I mean? Right. This is kind of their first attempt to do something. So I, I think that it's, you know, it is, it is these like capitalist obligations. It's their last vestige of um, what they feel like maybe their contributions to society can be like, it's, it's telling that that is the last thing that they came up with. And I'd like to think that it's not the filmmakers that have told them to say that it's like their own, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for themselves, because yeah. that makes it a far more organic uh, moment, I think. Yeah. And we're socialized into that hierarchy of needs, right? Like the, our, our jobs are, are, we are trained to put those first um, before, before those other, other obligations. I think in addition and as creative, to. And as, and as creatives, I think um, me to feel like, maybe the jobs that we're going to have, like as someone that, you know, because as, as someone myself that like, you know, definitionally a lot of times if things get bad, it will revert to like, well, at least I get to edit thing. Like at least I get right. paid for editing thing, which, which is kind of the dream job that I <laughs> had. Like it, it's, it's like as creatives are almost told like, well, listen, the capitalism might suck, but at least you're, you're able to create art in some capacity and it might suck Like you might not, this might not be the art that you want to create like at, at the bottom of your soul, but like one day you will be able to, if you work through this, which is another form of like bootstraps capitalism. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, the thing that um, Sarah Jaffe writes about in a book of hers that I just finished called uh, work won't love you back. 
Um, it's the myth of the labor of love, right? When you get to just like say, well, like, cool, like alienation and like immiseration and all of this brutalism is fine because I'm like making cool documentaries. Um, she wrote about that but, in Jackman, right? At one point. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. she did. I, yeah, I remember that. The, the only other thing I want to say about this response from Heather about it's the only thing I have left. I think yes to all the things you guys were saying about, you know, sort of capitalist obligations and her desire to still create and, and make a thing. I also think, and I read this this time now on the third watch um, of a movie that I said I would never watch again. Um, that <laughs> is 20 years. It's you only I, failed by 19 years. I also just think like now I'm just going to watch it every year. Every year like, does for like a decade. Okay. So, yeah. you know, it all works out. If I mean, this if this show survives for a year, we should do a next year. We should do like a does Blair Witch do, do our thoughts on Blair Witch Project still hold up a year later? Does it still hit? <laughs> okay, that's a deal. Um, I think the other reason, the other way that I read that line was that it is the last thing that she has control and agency over. They are in this situation where they are impossibly powerless. Right? They can't even trust the fucking compass. Like. They literally walk south, all south, one day, and end up, uh, as your as your username says, uh, at the same log. Maybe who knows? Um, and so everything is out of their hands at this point. Like even even their sort of like wherewithal and and their minds can't be trusted. Their perceptions can't be trusted. But she can still shoot. She can still pick up the camera and document whatever it is that they are, that they are seeing. Yeah. I, well, I, I would go, I would go, I think, um, I guess farther than you with this almost not to, not to, you know, brag about where, where I'm going to take this. I have merely given you the... a platform from which to spring. <laughs> No, but like from the beginning of this, it seems like her sense of control is tied around the documentary itself, right? Like the shooting is the is the thing that she has the most control over. Like I, I do think it's telling that they're asking her, like, "Why are you still filming?" And she's like, "Oh, well, we're going to capture this later." It, she could have just turned around and said, "You know what? All right, for right now, you know, for your own uh, whatever headspace, I'll turn off the camera." But she doesn't. Like the fact that she's capturing this whole thing, I think. Um, I think her sense of control the entire time is based around that. So it's interesting. Like you're hundred percent right. Like it's interesting at the end of it, it's all she has left. And it's that sense of control over her own artistic process. But I, I think that the fact that she's kind of leading this group through the woods and it, one of them is someone she barely knows. The other one, I mean, assumably is someone in her film class that is, you know, less gung ho about the project than her. The, the fact that she's able to take charge comes from the fact that she's willing to film the entire thing. Um, whether or not they had gotten lost in the woods, whether or not, you know, uh, the, the Blair Witch is real, whether or not anything like her role as director of this film, I'd assume, is 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 leading her in the entire time to take charge. And I think that is that's telling on that level, too. Um, also, yes. I think uh, just just real quickly, uh, it was either Josh or Mike. I can't remember which one um, got hold of the camera and said, oh, I see why you're filming. It's like it takes you mm -hmm. away from where we're at and makes everything seem less real. Um, yes. Not quite so, reality, so, you know. It, it does. It does. They they do actually kind of answer that particular question about her psychology 
uh, through that little bit of dialogue. So yeah, and that's yeah. something that I would want to explore further in like knowing more about her. Like, is there something that you know she is kind of trying to escape from that's driving that point too? Like, is something psychologically going on with her? Like, is a relationship fading away? Like, you know, what I mean, there's a lot of questions that you could ask about her psychological state during this also from that one moment of dialogue like oh i could see totally. why yeah um so i'm gonna go to final thoughts for everybody um starting with you guys you know final thoughts this watch through whoever wants to take it first um all right i guess i'm up uh yeah i mean i think we've covered a lot on here the blair witch is a film blair witch project i have to be clear because of uh, adam wingard's soft reboot film um the blair witch project is honestly one of the scariest movies i've ever seen um uh, you know I, I think that there's maybe a generational gap with people who like maybe don't respond to it the same way and and find it you know not scary or or you know kind of ghost or whatever but I, I i love the movie in spite of like always kind of dreading watching it it's just like 80 minutes of sheer terror i think it's immaculately conceived well acted uh it just technically like just you know chef's kiss and i i will never not be scared by this movie i don't think every time i watch it if i do it with any sort of level of like attention and immersion um i i will have a restless night at, at least one night of that week well it's i mean it's completely unsettling there's nothing there's nothing settling about it <laughs> <laughs> no settlements are made uh yeah all I'll say is that this movie is brilliant and it still rips. That's what I got. And you yeah. will be watching it again next year. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to these fine gentlemen. I, and and I, I think that, you know, the idea that um, this generation, it might not hit the same way for it comes from the fact that it was so successful that it spawned an endless amount of like to the point where even American Horror Story, which is like the, you know, yes. the show that, that, that most will go, oh, this this trope is beaten to death. Let me try to beat this death just a tiny bit more and get the last little bit of uh, whatever's left in there out of it, even capitalized on it. And you can't Andy? have the digital marketing and like the out of home stuff and and all of the all of the different, just the way that they immersed people in the story that can only hit once, right? And then you know yeah. once you get past a certain age and you've like grown up looking at a screen. Um, in the palm of your hand, like that stuff isn't going to be as effective on you. And I think a point that we've kind of talked about, um, I don't, I don't know how much of it on this show and how much on this is a revolution when we did the player um, a couple weeks hey ago, but there's a, there's, there's a moment in time. There's a, I, I think it, it might've been during our Slacker conversation with Matthew film guy. Um, there's a, there's a very small window of time where, um, for the first time, really, film technology and, you know, the ability to record a movie gets so widespread that independent movies can kind of be filmed. And it's like a, a film boom. And then you have to take it to a distributor. And then studios are buying films for, like, dirt cheap and then distributing them um, because they don't have to actually produce them at this point. And there's a very small window of time that I think you guys are kind of covering with your podcast specifically like the, the 90s like right where it all of a sudden becomes a buyer's market because people are creating their own films and then just handing them to studios the studio goes oh well if you want to go to sundance like to the point where there's an actual like there's actual like you know markets where you can bring your film to and it's right. shown there so this i don't think this movie can have like no studio would be able to make this like 
you know mm-hmm. so you have you have the the opportunity i guess with the internet to create like a kind of creepypasta rendition of this kind of thing where you're like oh i filmed this and for like dirt cheap and here's something and you put it on reddit and then everyone's like holy shit but it's not ever going to be picked up by a studio like no studio is going to be like i want to produce this as a film it's just going to be like a right. bunch of people on reddit are like holy shit is this real or not and that's all it will it hits that wall after that yeah just like gold coins that's that's what you get from reddit yeah <laughs> all right andy final thoughts on this um I think this movie is a lot of fun because um, like my, my love of medium of the comic um, it's the space in between the panels that, that, you know uh, the spaces that we don't see that allows your imagination and this film to kind of um, do its magic. Uh, So, so it it is um, probably the closest thing to a comic book in a way um, uh, as, as way as they were trying to, do this experimental storytelling. So um, uh, I quite enjoyed this movie and it's a lot of fun. So if you haven't seen it, I fun highly recommend the, it. Yeah. Fun for the whole family. Fun for the family. Yes. That's right. and I'll for be the showing witch. it to my kids tomorrow. And for the witch living in the in the woods by your house. Yeah. Yes. She'll enjoy it. <laughs> All right. With that, I'm going to leave it here. Um, I'm just going to say, you know, as they say, left is best. Yeah.